This week's Torah portion is called Ki Sisa, which means literally when you raise. Ki Sisa es Rosh B'nai Yisrael. Hashem says to Moshe, you should raise up the heads of the Jewish people. In fact, what he's telling him is to take a census and that each Jew should contribute a half shekel. And through those half shekels, we'd get to count the people and see exactly how many Jews there were. So why does it use the expression Ki Sisa when you will lift? Ki Sisa es Rosh, when you will lift the head. Now, what's interesting in context is that we know that the name of a Torah portion is not just the introductory phrase of that portion, but it somehow is supposed to convey the theme of the entire parasha, which is ironic, because the main story in this week's parasha is about the failure of the Jewish people at the time of the golden calf. And that was the most serious misstep of the whole of Jewish history. It's a time of falling. So it's a little ironic to call the parasha Kisi So when you raise the head of the Jewish people. There are various explanations that are given. I'll share two. One of the explanations says, well, after the golden calf and the tremendous downfall of the Jewish people spiritually, it was necessary, Kisi So, to raise them up again. Now, part of the reason that they went into this terrible space and made a golden calf was because they had this terrible panic. Oh my gosh, we're leaderless. We are directionless. What is happening? Hashem has abandoned us. Here we are at the foot of the mountain. Moshe said he was coming back. He hasn't come back. So that panic led to the making of the golden calf. And so the commentaries tell us, when you've been through that kind of an experience, you need to be taught how to raise your head, how to keep your head, how to retain your focus, how to rise above just simple panic and understand and appreciate what's going on in the world, separate fact from fiction and know how to behave as a Jewish person in whatever particular circumstances it is that you find yourselves in. Very relevant lesson for us right now in the world. Secondly, Kisi saw Esroish, the commentaries immediately point out that because the Jewish people had been through this terrible fall and had engaged in the golden calf, they needed to be lifted. And this would be the first step, getting people to pull their resources, to contribute, and not stem, not just simply to contribute to each other, but actually to contribute to making a home for Hashem in this world, a place of holiness in a mundane environment. The Rebbe gives a massively interesting insight to this, and that is, Often, when a person has had some kind of a failure, when a person has had a setback in life, whatever it might be, it could be a spiritual mistake that had devastating consequences, like the golden calf, or it could be a setback, something happened in my life and suddenly my hands are tied, I can't travel as I had expected to, or maybe I'm in self-quarantine. Anytime that those things happen in our lives, we should appreciate that there's a principle which says, Yerida Tzorech Aliyah, that any movement backwards is exactly like pulling back on an elastic which gives you the potential to fly forward and to advance yourself in an unprecedented way. That's Ki Sisa. The theme of the parasha, albeit a story of failure, is actually the rebound from failure. Albeit a story of setback and limitation, it's the story of how we can rise above that limitation. So often in our lives, we tell ourselves the fallacy that if things would be good, I would be good. But in fact, in life, it's very often when things are adversarial, when things are difficult, they're not going according to plan, when you feel that the world around you is shutting down, rather than to get sucked into the vortex of, here we go, down with everybody else, it's an opportunity, ki si so. There will always be those people who emerge, who stand head above the crowd, 
those people who lift themselves and lift others by learning that in whatever adversarial circumstances I find myself, whether they're of my own doing, my spiritual mistakes, or whether they are because of circumstances beyond my control, what Hashem has done and put me into, either way, there's always the opportunity from that not only to survive, not only to thrive, but to lift myself to heights I never imagined possible. Have a wonderful Shabbos. There's an old joke that says the Jewish telegram begins, start worrying, details to follow. Except that nowadays it's not a telegram and it's not uniquely Jewish. It's the message of mass media. It's coming. The pandemic will fly out of control and we're all going to be affected. Now as Jewish people, we have an halachic obligation to protect life and to protect health. So if there are health guidelines or medical guidelines, we are required by law to follow them. At the same time, it is a basic tenet of Judaism to have trust in God. To trust that if we take the steps we are required to take, we trust that Hashem will make things turn out in the best possible way for us. Panic is antithetical to Torah thinking. If you look in our history, you'll find that any time that the Jewish nation panicked, there were devastating results. When Moshe did not come down from Mount Sinai at what they believed to be the allocated time, they panicked and made the golden calf. That was almost the end of the Jewish people. Not long after that, when the 12 spies returned from Israel to give a report on the so-called promised land, they panicked. We're not going to be able to do this. It's a formidable enemy. It's not going to work. We're going to die in the desert. As a direct result of the panic, that entire generation lost the opportunity to go into the promised land. And their children had to circle around in the desert for 40 years, waiting for that generation to pass. There are many other examples in our history. But maybe a more contemporary example is, August will be 30 years from when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And with that, of course, there was the Gulf War. And there was terrible panic globally, but specifically in Israel. The threat of chemical warheads, the Scud missiles, the distribution of gas masks. And I remember vividly how at the time the Rebbe quoted a Midrash, the Yalkut Shimoni. And the Midrash predicts how there will be the scuffle between the king of Persia and the king of Arabia. And how the Jewish people will run backwards and forwards saying, where can we escape? And the Midrash continues to say, at that time Moshiach will come. And he will stand on the roof of the temple and he will announce everything that Hashem has done in this great panic situation was actually for your sake. The time of your redemption has arrived. And thinking back to that period 30 years ago and how the Rebbe encouraged people not to leave Israel and to continue to study in yeshivas there or to go ahead with their trips that they had planned and not to scare people by distributing gas masks because there wasn't going to be a chemical attack reminds me of how a Jewish person is supposed to think in the face of panic. Everybody around us might be in this blind state of chaos. We are supposed to remember that Hashem directs the world. As long as we take the steps that we're required to take, and as long as we work on doing what Hashem would expect of us, a little bit more Torah, a little bit more davening, a little bit more mitzvah, a little bit more reaching out to the next person to help them, not waiting for the crisis before we do. Those are the things that we should be doing at this time. And please God, as the Rebbe said at that particular time, this major world 
wide panic should just be the opening of Higia Zman Gulasim, where Mashiach comes along and says, look, all of this was purely just to set the stage for the redemption, for Mashiach's coming. And that's what we really pray for, hope for, and please God expect at this time of the year, we will just come from the holiday of Purim, a time of redemption, and we start looking towards the holiday of Pesach, a time of redemption. Please God, we should experience directly as a result of the corona panic and the coronavirus, we should please God have the immediate arrival of Moshiach. I feel no option but to digress. There's such juicy material to talk about at the moment, being just before Purim. So, everywhere, this, I can assure you, based on having spoken to many, many people, that everywhere this past Chavez, the one of the hottest topics that people were talking about, obviously, was the corona, coronavirus, is the big topic that everybody's talking about. And because of that, I thought it'd be worth our while to take a bit of time and just to talk about it. Whether we do or don't get to actually learn the mimer today will depend on how much we learn up talking about it. So right now, I don't know if you've heard this, but there is a prophecy that says that Mashiach will come riding on a donkey. And the reason is because all the flights into Israel are grounded. So he has to come in the old technology. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know how much of a laughing matter coronavirus is, this new uh, COVID-19. Today is a fast. The Rambam writes in Hilchos Taniyos, which is the laws of fasts, why do we fast? And he says as follows. He says the reason that we fast is because if people would adopt an attitude that would say, Mikro nikre. Things happen by coincidence. That, he says, would be considered achzorius. That would be considered cruel. Because if you believe that things happen just coincidentally, then you believe that we are not empowered to change them. So the reason we have a fast day is because when there's a gzeru and there's something hectic that's happening, that's there's some kind of a threat that hangs over the community. The fast day reminds us that we have an opportunity that we can do Teshuvah and we can reconnect to Hashem. And by reconnecting to Hashem, that can help us to be able to stave off whatever particular threat it is. By the same token, when it comes to coronavirus, we have two choices. People could talk about it as they speak about it in the broader secular society, which is, this is... It's spiraling out of control. They believed at one point that maybe they could contain it. That was the original hope, but that's how they would stop the spread of the virus, like back in 2003 with SARS, when they were able to contain it before it spread too far. That's it's too late. It's now, as they say, that horse has bolted. And now it's everywhere, and the question is, how will we ever stop this thing? And as a result, there's a tremendous amount of fear in the world, and the belief in the greater world is that this is random, coincidental. It's a mutation of a virus. It's nothing you can do to stop it. As Jewish people, we dare not think that way. So I thought it would be useful for us to spend a bit of time trying to understand how a Jewish person is supposed to look at this. And this is not exhaustive. I'm sure there's a lot more that we could talk about. But maybe just a few thoughts and pointers that we could apply how Jewish people are supposed to look at this particular situation. So tonight's Purim. And everybody's very excited about it. 
Of course, the jokes are doing the rounds that this Purim, everybody's wearing masks. <laughs> so, if we look at the Purim story, it will help us to understand a lot about the coronavirus because I would wager that Haman's decree was the first viral message in history. I mean, think about it. How did it actually spread? Think, how was it possible, the technology that they had in those days, over 127 countries, how did Haman manage to galvanize everybody that they should get on board to attack the Jewish people? It must be they were already infected from before. This virus called anti-Semitism, they were already infected from beforehand. So I think if we look at Purim as a story, because Purim is the only story that we have in Jewish history where the entire population was all threatened simultaneously. So it would be useful for us to get like, some kind of insight on how we should be looking at this particular situation. The Gemara in Megillah asks a question. For what reason? What did the Jews do? Now the Gemara doesn't like to speak that way. So the Gemara says, what did the enemies of the Jews do? It's just a way of kind of, you know, it's euphemistic. Instead of saying, we have the problem, make it about somebody else. What did the Jews do that was so bad for which they deserved the threat of Haman, God forbid, annihilating the whole Jewish people? So what did they do? Let's work it out. What could we pin on the Jewish people and say, that's what they did, that's why they deserved to be killed? Any ideas? Ah, so Mordechai would not bow. The Gemara does not see that as part of the problem. Even though, ostensibly, that's the reason, right? Mordechai refused to participate in Haman's big move to get everybody to bow to him. The Gemara does not write that that is the reason. Because the Gemara says everything that happens in the physical world has to be only as a result of what's going on in the spiritual world. So if there's a physical threat, there has to be a spiritual cause. So what was the spiritual cause? Exactly. So the Gemara first makes a suggestion that the reason that they deserved to be killed was because in the time of Nebuchadnezzar they bowed to an idol. But the Gemara rejects that. It does not say it's a plausible reason because at the time of Nebuchadnezzar there was a small portion of people who were involved. And this was a threat obviously against the entire Jewish world from top to bottom. So the Gemara goes back and revisits and comes to the following conclusion. It says that the reason that they deserved this was because because they enjoyed the feast that Achashverosh made. And that's why the opening scene of the Megillah is this grandiose feast that Achashverosh made. So now we have to go back and say, so what's so bad about enjoying the feast for heaven's sake? This is enough that Hashem should be willing to empower Haman that he could threaten the entire Jewish people because they enjoyed the Suda. It doesn't make any sense. Let's, let's think it for a second. How many sins are there for which a person would deserve God forbid to be killed? Huh? Well, there's more than three. There's a whole lot of things that if a person does, they deserve to be killed. But on pain of death, in other words, if somebody is threatened that either you do X or we kill you, there are only three occasions where a Jewish person is required to sacrifice their life and not to transgress. What are they? Idolatry, adultery, and murder. Okay, so at Achashverosh's feast, 
Was there any murder? I mean, it wasn't planned, right? At the end it happened. Vashti got taken out. But that wasn't the plan. It's not like Achashverosh brought everybody together because he was planning to murder somebody. And yes, I know, you can, you can imagine if there's Jews and there's a lot of food, there is always the potential of murder. But that's not the concern, obviously, that they had. It's not that they were forbidden to go to the feast because of murder. So that's for sure not, a, not a, a, an issue. How about adultery? Possibly, right? Possibly, you could say possibly that there was going to be some kind of poor behavior that was happening over there. Maybe people would be seduced into some kind of inappropriate relationship. So perhaps. What about idolatry? Idolatry? We have no evidence that there was idolatry at the party. None whatsoever. But what we do have evidence is this. The Torah tells us, the Megillah says, that when Ahasuerus made his feast, he designed his feast to be kiratsoin ish va ish, to be suited to the wishes of ish and ish. Now, the simple translation is people say every person, but we know you can't satisfy because it's impossible. So who was it talking about ish for ish? Says the Gemara, there are two people in the Megillah who are referred to with the title ish. One is Mordechai, ish Yehudi. And the other is Haman Lahabdil, who is called ish Sarva Oyev, terrible, villainous man. So the Gemara says, the intention that Ahasuerus had was that this meal should be suited to the one ish to Haman and to the other ish to Mordechai. Now, if you want to make a sauda that is suitable for Mordechai, there can't be idolatry. If you expect that, Moshe, that Mordechai is the leader of the Jewish people, because that's what Ahasuerus wanted, he should give his stamp of approval. If you expect him to give his stamp of approval, you can't have idolatry. You can't have adultery. Not only that, but we know that the food that he served was glut kosher. Not only kosher, glut kosher, mahadrin kosher. You understand? The biggest rabbis could have eaten over there and it would have been to their satisfaction. So what was wrong with going to this feast that the Gemara concludes that that's the reason why we deserve, God forbid, to have this terrible threat over us? Doesn't seem to make sense. So let's talk for a second. Let's get into the minds of the Jews at the time. They get an invitation in the mail. It's got the royal seal on it. You are cordially invited to Achashverosh's big feast. So they say, all right, what are we going to do? And the king invites you. I want to know, if the king invites you to a feast, what is your response? Obviously I'm going. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Obviously I'm going to go. The king invited me. It doesn't happen every day. It might never happen to a person in their lifetime. Of course I'm going to go. It's not even a question. And then, of course, you get the big killjoy, Mordechai. Mordechai comes along and he says, nobody's going anywhere. We're boycotting this feast. Nobody's allowed to go. So now let's see how do you think the conversation went between the Jews and Mordechai. So Mordechai says, don't go to the feast. What do the Jews say? No, 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 no. This is Jews. I say, why not? I say, why not? He says, because it's not appropriate to go to the feast. They say, why? The food is kosher. It's going to be from the best caterer. I don't know who the big caterer was in those days. You know, the, the Hoidu Kush caterer, whatever it was. They're going to, it's going to be amazing food. I heard that they're going to have sushi. And, you know, if it's a function of sushi, a Jew has to go. So that's, it's, what, what's your problem, Mordechai? He says, no, you cannot go to the feast. Why? What was wrong with the feast? Because this feast was a celebration of the fact that the Jews were trapped in Golos. Because there was a prophecy that they were only going to be in exile for 70 years. 70 years by the accounting of Ahasuerus had already lapsed. 
They were still in Golis. In his mind, they're never going back. There'll never be another temple. There'll never be another Jewish kingdom. That's the celebration. So Mordechai says, how can you go to such a celebration? What are you, crazy? You're going to go and celebrate the downfall of the Jewish people? Meshuggah, right? No such thing would ever exist except for the, the Jewish communists and the kapos and uh, certain liberal democrats, right? Who goes to such a feast? How do you align yourself with these people? So what do they say in response? But he's the king. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. It's the king inviting you. You know what a snub it will be? You know what problems the Jewish people will have if we refuse to go to the king's feast? It says in Halacha that you have to respect the local authorities. It says that you have to pray for their well-being. It says that the rules of the king are the rules that you have to follow. How can we not go? This is the battle between Mordechai and the Jews, and of course the Jews go to the feast, and Mordechai does not. So what did they do wrong? They went to be part of a celebration of their own downfall. Is that a reason why they deserve to be killed? Unfortunately, it's happened multiple times in Jewish history. Unfortunately, we have always had peripheral Jews who have sided with our enemies in the hope that that would work out well for them. It's a story that they tell the Friedrich Rebbe. The Friedrich Rebbe, sorry, tells a story about the Tzemach Tzedek, that there was once a fellow who came to the Tzemach Tzedek. And he was one of these big opponents in the early days of the Maskilim, the Enlightenment movement. And he came to the, to the Tzemach Tzedek and he told the Tzemach Tzedek whatever he told him. The Tzemach Tzedek said, I promise you at the end of time, all your big friends are going to turn on you and you're going to have a bitter end. The Friedrich Rebbe told this story to his captors in 1927, the Jewish communists who held him prisoner. He told them the same thing and unfortunately that's what happened. They were all finished off in the most gruesome ways in the end. So is this a reason? Is it, I mean, it's happened in history, but is that a reason? What did they do wrong? So the emphasis of the Gemara the Rebbe explains is Nehenu. They enjoyed the experience. What does it mean they enjoyed the experience? Nehenu means that they felt there was a benefit for them. You know, sometimes you have to do things because you have to do them. If the Torah says that you have to respect the authorities, then you respect the authorities, not because you feel personally that it's an enjoyable thing, but because you're dedicated to Torah, so go ahead and you do it. Their attitude was not, the Torah says we've got to go to Ahasuerus' feast. No, their attitude was, you have to realize, do you know who Ahasuerus is? He is the leader of the entire developed world. He is the most powerful person that exists. He decides the fate of every single Jew. Across 127 countries, there's no Jew who can escape. How can you not go to such, you understand the benefits to us if we go, and the downside if we don't? In other words, what happened at that moment was, they lost sight of who is in control. Throughout the Megillah, we alternate between the name Achashverosh and the term Hamelech, the king. And that was the mistake that they made. They misplaced Hamelech, the king, Hashem, who does control everything, with Achashverosh, who they started to believe controls things. So what does Hashem say? Very similar to the Rashi in the story of Amalek. Rashi says that the story of Amalek is like a man who was carrying his child on his shoulders. A whole day he's schlepping his child on his shoulders. And when he gets hungry, the child asks the father and the father gets him something to eat. And when he gets thirsty, he asks the father and the father gets him something to eat. And when he gets hot, the father gives him something to shade himself. And eventually they pass somebody and the kid says to the passerby, has anybody seen my father? And at that moment, the father takes his son off his shoulders, puts him down onto the ground, and immediately a dog comes and bites him. That's how Rashi explains Amalek. 
This is what happened over here. The, the child. This is what happened over here. As long as we recognize that we're riding on Hashem's shoulders, that Hashem is Hamelech, that Hashem is 100% in control, and that the only way that things work out well for the Jewish people is when we do what Hashem says, no Haman in the world could touch us. But the minute the Jews come along, they say, Nehenu, we enjoy our relationship with Achashverosh because we believe that Achashverosh has power and Achashverosh can determine our fate. Hashem says, okay, off my shoulders. Now you can live in Achashverosh's world. And if he happens to be taken in by a guy like Haman and he gives him incredible powers, well, you opted for that. You said Achashverosh is the power in your experience. So now he is. Took the Jews a bit of time and a tremendous scare. And then they woke up and they realized, oh, Achashverosh is not the power. Hashem is the power. So when you fast forward to the end of the Purim story, you see a stark difference from the beginning and the end. In the beginning of the Purim story, the Jews had no power. They were foreigners, immigrants. They had nobody in any position within the government. Yet they didn't think that they needed Hashem, they thought they needed the government. At the end of the Purim story, the queen is Jewish. Mordechai is a senior official in the cabinet and he had already saved Achashverosh's life. So Achashverosh owed him a big favor should he call on it. And what do the Jews do at the end of the story? They don't go use Mordechai and his connections. And they don't go ask Esther to petition the king until they take three days to fix their relationship with Hashem. When they fast and they daven and they make sure that they've sorted things out with the real Melech, with the real one in control, once we've re-established faith in Hashem, then we can go about doing the things that we have to do as human beings, what we call Ishtadlus, making a keli, creating the environment within which Hashem's brocha can rest, but not to believe that that's what actually causes the brocha to happen. If you think about it logically, Esther's appeal to Achashverosh would be totally undermined by three days of fasting. It was a poor strategy. If you're playing up the attractive wife card, then rather let her have a good gazunta meal before she goes, she has a bit of color in her cheeks, and that her, more, her breath doesn't smell like who knows what. But instead, they fast for three days, and that's how she goes into the king. Why? Because that was the minute where they shifted back to recognizing Hamelech who's in charge. As we go into Purim, so the world goes meshuggah about something that seems to, in the words of uh, certain scientists at least, threaten the entire population. And Purim reminds us, like the Rambam says, the fast is to tell us that when there is a gezerah, it's not happenstance. It's Hashem directing it in order that we should awaken ourselves to reconnect Hashem so as to stop the thing as quickly as it started. And we're going to Purim, which is a reminder that when there's a terrible threat hanging over the Jewish people, you don't look at the threat, you look at Hashem. So with that in mind, we need to Think about what should our perspective be as Jews looking at this corona. Should we maintain personal hygiene? Obviously. 
I saw somebody posted a thing, said, I'm shocked at how many people are only now washing their hands. <laughs> Scary but true. Obviously, we have to keep personal hygiene. Obviously, if somebody is sick, they have to take precautions and if necessary, be quiet. Obviously. But you know what's fascinating about the story? Many things are fascinating about the story. But to me, one of the things that is the most fascinating is how bizarre it's gone in Israel. Nowhere on the planet has the same response as in Israel. They're saying that it's going to be 60,000 people in quarantine. I don't know if you saw Tzach, which is the outreach Chabad organization for the whole of Israel, posted on Friday that if you are in quarantine, we will come and read the Megiddo for you. It's a big undertaking. You don't realize how many people, 14 days of quarantine. You understand what this does to productivity, what it does to families. Meshuggah. I know somebody personally came back from a trip overseas and, and they came back and their the child had twins and they haven't seen the twins. Imagine them living like this. So we have to pay attention to what's going on globally and specifically in Israel and look at it through Jewish eyes. Through Jewish eyes we don't look at the World Health Organization and we don't look at the Minister of Health and that we never do. Uh, we don't look at, uh, at the policy in America or whatever the case is. We have to look at our relationship with Hashem and say, what's going on over here? What's the message for us? More specifically, we know that we are living in the time of Mashiach. That is supposed to be the positioning perspective of every single Jewish person. We're living in the time of Mashiach. We pay a lot of lip service to Mashiach. We talk about these things, please God, speedily in our days, whatever it is. But then every time something comes up on our agenda, we put Mashiach on hold. So I'll come back to you, Mashiach, as soon as the dust settles. Now, back in 1990, in the Gulf War, if anybody remembers, the Gulf War is coming up now for the 30th anniversary, right? At the time, people were going Meshuggah. You remember this? Saddam Hussein was threatening, and he had these chemical warheads and Scud missiles, and he was going to obliterate Israel, and people were afraid. And everybody wanted to do exactly that, put life on hold, take kids back from yeshiva, not celebrate weddings in Israel, put life on hold. This, the more academic people put Mashiach and all that you know, abstract philosophy on hold. And let's deal with the problem at hand. There's a war that is coming Israel's way, potentially devastating. And at the time, if anybody remembers, the Rebbe said again and again and again that there's a Midrash, the Yalkut Shimoni. And the Midrash says that in the time before Mashiach comes, there will be Malchios, Mizgoros, Zoi Bazoi. That nations will skirmish with each other. In other words, it's not going to be outright war. Mizgoros means they'll taunt each other. And it says specifically there that it will be the king of Persia who will attack the king of Arabia. And the king of Arabia will go to the king of Aram for suggestions and advice and direction. So Persia is obvious, we know who that is, and Arab, they'll say, is the Arab world, or maybe Saudi Arabia, and a lot of people said Arab is America, be that as it may. But what was the point that the Rebbe made? When you see this happening in the world, the Midrash has clearly realized that this is Mashiach coming. That's how you have to look at it. Not to say, listen, there's a war going on, Mashiach is a nice idea, right now there's a war. You have to see it as the unfolding of Mashiach. Likewise, if something has grabbed the world in a chokehold 
and everybody's obsessed and everybody's talking about it and it affects every single person that's what's fascinating about it It affects every single person if you think that this is divorced from the whole mashiach concept then we don't appreciate what mashiach is then to us mashiach is a fable and a fantasy and this coronavirus is real like the people in the time of purim god is a nice idea but right now there's achashverosh to deal with we'll come back to you god once we've dealt with achashverosh and his feast and whatever else is going to happen so what's coronavirus got to do with Mashiach? That's how we should be thinking. And the answer is not necessarily this answer, but the thinking should be this thinking. What is the connection between coronavirus and Mashiach? The Gemara tells us that at the end of days, it's a debate between two rabbis, and then that debate in turn is a debate between two rabbis. But it says that before Mashiach comes, the Jews will do Teshuvah. Guaranteed. Guaranteed the Jews will do Teshuvah. One opinion. The other opinion says the Jews will definitely do Teshuvah. It's not guaranteed that it will be because they do Teshuvah. What does that mean? So the other opinion says what will happen is if the Jews do not do Teshuvah, then Hashem will send a king whose decrees will be as harsh as the decrees of Haman, and that will stimulate them to do Teshuvah. So we have to understand then the decree of Haman, and based on that, understand what the Gemara is trying to say. So what did Haman have that no other anti-Semite in the whole of history had? Jewish. No, no, that's a Hashverosh. <coughs> What did Haman have that no other anti-Semite had? Access to every living Jew. Nobody else ever had that. Because Achashverosh was what we call Moishel Bekipah. He was a leader over the whole world. 127 countries. So every living Jew was somewhere in that kingdom. If Haman could influence Achashverosh to allow them to kill all the Jews, it was literally all the Jews. Never in history has there been that level of threat, not even in the Holocaust. So if you're looking at a king that will be like Haman, then you're looking for a king who has the power to affect all of the Jews that exist in the whole world. In fact, there it says, in a single day, rapid, rapid contamination. That's number one. Number two, did he succeed? If you look with the benefit of hindsight at the Haman story, Haman actually goes down in history as not the biggest genocide against Jews, because he wasn't, but rather the biggest scare in history. Because everybody was afraid, and at the end what happened? Nobody was touched. Very much like that Midrash in the Yalkut Shimoni that speaks about this war between Persia and Arabia that says the Jews will run back and forth and they'll say, where can we go? How can we protect ourselves? And Hashem will tell them, don't worry everything that I have done, I have done for you. The time of your Geula has arrived. Same kind of concept. The Jews of Tamaham are running back and forth. What is it? It's all for you. So there should be a massive Geula that comes to the world. So this is what we're dealing with now. You see, the Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin, Gimel Boin Behesachadas. Three things happen in a state of Hesachadas. The most simple translation of Hesachadas is when you least expect them, when you don't pay attention. Number one is a Metziah. 
It says you find something valuable. So let's say you're walking on the street and you find 100 rand lying on the floor. So what do you say? You don't know how long I've been working to find 100 rand on the floor. No, it's a mitzia. You don't expect it. You're walking, there's 100 rand. Boom. The second example is an akrog, a scorpion. Because a scorpion, unlike a snake, doesn't have the ability to move fast enough and sting you if you see it coming. That's how the Gemara says, if a snake comes near a person during the Amidah, you stand still. If it's a scorpion, you run because you can run. So that means if somebody's stung by a scorpion, they obviously didn't see it coming. Hesach Hadas. What's the third thing? Mashiach. Mashiach will come by Hesach Hadas. And most people think that this is a big red warning that says, don't talk about Mashiach because he can only come when you don't expect it. The Rebbe explains that's not what it means. It means, Hesach Da'as means, Da'as is your understanding and your comprehension. Mashiach will come by Hesach in a way that you had not comprehended or you had not anticipated. Whatever you understood about how Mashiach is supposed to come, guess what? Hashem is more creative than you imagined and He's going to come up with a way that you hadn't thought of. So we read in the Gemara, it says, that before Mashiach comes, what will happen? Hashem will send a king. And that king will threaten us like Haman did. And that will awaken everybody to Teshuvah. So we keep watching the headlines for this big tyrannical king. And when Obama sends a whole lot of money to the nuclear development of Iran, we think, oh, 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 there comes the king. He's coming. He's going to be an Ayatollah. That's what's going to happen. He's going to threaten the whole world with nuclear force. And then we'll do Teshuvah. And then guess what happens? Nothing. So we start looking, where else? Maybe it's North Korea. Oh, maybe North Korea is going to be the king. Hashem is much smarter than all of us. Hashem sends a melech. Who says the melech has to be human? Out of all the names they choose to give this particular virus, when they originally discovered it, wherever and whenever it was, 60s or whatever it was, what do they call it? Corona. What's Corona? A crown. <laughs> Why do they call it Corona? Because the bacteria itself, or the virus itself, looks like a crown. It's got these little spokes that come out. And why does it look that way? Well, the scientists decided it should look that way. Hashem designed something that it should look like a crown, that it should look like a king. So now you've got the Corona threatening the whole world. First time since Haman. That you've got something that's mamesh mehoidu v'at kush, from one end of the world to the other. We once, of course, in Yiddish, kush, you know, means to kiss. What a great way of transferring corona. So, suddenly you have a threat that touches the whole world simultaneously. You have two ways to look at it. Either you could look at it like everybody else and say, Oh, you give out, there's a pandemic on our hands. Until they come up with a vaccine, there's nothing we can do about it. You can't really protect yourself. You can wash your hands and hope for the best. Or you could look at it through the eyes of a Jew and you say, Achashverosh does not rule the world. Hamelech, Hashem runs the world. He chose to send out this particular virus now, at this time, in rapid fire has touched the whole world. This, to us, we have to see as a sign of Mashiach. This is the king. But, but the Gemara says that the king's there to get us to do Teshuvah. So we, that's, that's our responsibility. We have to react by doing Teshuvah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so what? But 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 there's two there's there's two ways you can look at it, right? You can totally buy in and totally allow the world to control you, 
Again, we have responsibility to take all the necessary precautions. That is an halachic responsibility. But where our head lives, it's get, you go to the feast, you go to the feast. But nehene, is that where your passion lies? Is that where your head lies? Is that where your emotion lies? No, that a Jew is not allowed to do that. A Jew has to do what a Jew has to do and feel as a Jew has to feel and they might sometimes be a little bit incongruous. It's exactly like the person who goes and follows the doctor's instructions but has to believe in Hashem. Same principle. Now, is it, sorry, one more question. Is it a lot that a Jew doesn't observe the laws of Israel going to fail? I don't know. Can't, uh, can't comment on that. Okay? So now, look at the world. This is, this, this is the mind-blowing part of this. Okay? This is honestly mind-blowing. At the end of last year, who was the most famous person in the world? No? Not at the end of I mean, maybe Trump was very, uh, you know, in your face. But at the end of the world, who was voted the most famous person at the end of the world? At the end of the year, last year. Who was voted as the most famous person? Front page of Time magazine, person of the year. New? Greta Thunberg. The climate change activist teenager. Right? Why? It doesn't matter. Why was she the big thing? Why, why was she the big deal? Because the whole world said that the biggest threat to humanity is climate change. And when is climate change going to hit us for real? 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, something like that. They're not sure. You know, we keep moving back and forth this way or that way. Reminds me of the story of the kid who comes home from school and his grandfather says, what did you learn at school today? He says, I learned that in a billion years from now, the sun is going to fizzle out and we're all going to die. <laughs> so the grandfather says, what? He says, yes, in a billion years, the sun is going to fizzle out. The grandfather says, oh, I thought you said million. Climate change, I'm not going to get into the debate of whether it's a real thing or fake news or whatever, simply put, is, was considered the greatest threat to humanity, but a long-term threat. It's not going to happen tomorrow. So Hashem comes along and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to show, tell you I'm in control. You can have all your congresses and get everybody together and have summits and do whatever you want. I will show you that I'm 100% in control. Here's something you hadn't thought of. A previously completely innocuous virus that's been around for ages that people have had for who knows how long. I'll show you. It reminds me of Titus. You remember when Titus came out of the base of Mikdash and he thought he had killed God because he stabbed the parochas and Hashem made a miracle and blood came out and he said, I have killed the Jewish God. And then he gets onto his ship to go back to, to Rome and suddenly the tempest at sea and he says, oh, the Jewish God is back and he only knows how to kill with water because that's what he did with the flood and with the Egyptians. So Hashem says, no, 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 I'll send a gnat, tiny little gnat, microscopic creature, and that will finish you off. The whole world says, we know climate change. It's exactly like in the old days after the flood. They said they're going to build a tower to prop up the heavens so they can, they can never be destroyed again. You know, climate change, the world is going to, don't worry, we have a way. We're going to come up with rules and emissions and forests and whatever. We're going to control this thing. Hashem says, I'll send you something, a tiny little gnat, smaller, much, much smaller than a gnat. And something that everybody thinks so benign. See if you can handle that before you start talking about saving the whole world. See if you can handle one little microbe. Let's see how we go. Incidentally, by the way, that reminds me of rabbis. How do rabbis always speak? 
They give a whole nice drosha, and then at the end, there's this token that you have to put in at the end. And may we merit to the coming of Moshiach speedily in our days. That phrase, speedily in our days, is a phrase that says next of next week, as we say in, in South Africa. You know, it will happen at some point. You know, I believe in Moshiach, but it's not now. I mean, now there's bigger issues. It's Purim tonight. You know, Moshiach is a great idea, but tonight is Purim. And then after Purim, it's going to be Pesach, and Pesach kills four weeks of your life. So, you know, you for sure can't think about Moshiach on Pesach. That would be so incongruous, the festival of of Gula to think about Mashiach. After Pesach, we'll think about Mashiach. Speedily nowadays, somewhere down the line, climate change. One day there'll be a problem. It's not today. One day there'll be a problem. We should prepare for it, but one day there'll be a problem. Hashem says to let me show you how this works. Tomorrow your whole world can change. Mashiach is not a long off sometime in the future thing. Like this, tomorrow the whole world can change. In, in moments. So this is what we're looking at. This is this corona issue. We have two choices. Either we succumb to the mass thinking, in which case we're victims like everybody else, or we recognize that that is a zorius, that that is a cruel way of living, and that Hashem has empowered us, and we should respond in a way of teshuva, and then we put it back to being like Haman, the biggest scare in history, but nobody actually gets hurt. Because in numbers, in numbers, it's not yet the numbers of the flu, the normal flu, it's not yet the numbers of any of the other major dread diseases that kill millions of people every year. It's not necessarily even the number of road accidents in the world, right? So it's not yet their numbers. It is still possible for this whole thing to deflate and to become just one big scare, but that's in our hands. Do we give it power or do we recognize that it's Hashem waking us up? So what's happened in the meantime with this scare? And this is what's so mind-blowing is that you've got something which is technically a scare and the whole world is falling apart. Markets are in dread. And it's unbelievable what's going on on the markets. Travel and tourism is dead. China, they say, which is now 17% of the world GDP. When SARS was the, the big epidemic in 2003, I think they say China then was responsible for something like 3 or 5% of the world GDP. 17%. We don't realize what that is. That the world GDP, it's a guarantee now that the first quarter results from China are going to be totally destroyed. But they say probably the second quarter as well. These are the predictions that are coming out. Practically what that means for us is a whole lot of manufacturing is ground to a complete halt. So things that we take for granted, normal household things that we take for granted are not available. They're just not making them. Whether it be your iPhone, that is um, the whole Apple manufacturing plant over there is dead. Or whether it be things that sit in a retail shop over here that are sourced from China, that stock that they've got is the stock that they've got. That's why people are going crazy and stockpiling toilet paper and who knows what. And, um, or whether it be, somebody just told me recently a story in the agricultural sector, they needed to get a, a, a tractor for their farm. Nothing to discuss because they had a, a, an order waiting from America, this particular factory, for a few thousand tractors. They could only produce 400 out of the 7,000, whatever it is that they were needed. That's it, they're going to America, there's nobody to talk to. So there's this incredible global slowdown. They talk about potentially cancelling the Olympics. In Italy now, all sports games are without spectators, if you can imagine that kind of a thing. Right? Shutting down, I spoke to a guy yesterday who was supposed to go to a big medical convention in Europe. That's it. It's not happening. Cancelled. Spoke to somebody this morning who was supposed to go on a trip to Scandinavia. It was cancelled. 
I mean, it's incredible to imagine the impact. You're literally watching the world shut down. Can't help being scared. I'm not saying, I'm not blaming anybody. But this is the fascinating thing. If you don't see Hashem's hand in this, that something which to date has not yet proven to be as a, much a pandemic as they anticipate it might be, but to date it hasn't yet proven to be. To have this kind of global hysteria is unprecedented. The last time I was trying to have this conversation with somebody on Friday, we were trying to work out what was the last time in the world that the whole world was affected in this way was the Second World War. Think about it. What else could have like ground the world to a halt like this? So now, if you look in the Gemara Sanhedrin, it talks about a whole lot of signs of things that will happen just before Mashiach comes. And many of them seem to be just, you know, random, unrelated predictions. For example, there's a prediction that before Mashiach, there'll be terrible chutzpah in the world and children will rise up against their parents and their younger people will demand respect from older people. One category. Different category. It predicts that before Mashiach comes, there'll be no money. People literally will not have money in their pockets. Another sector. Then there's another suggestion that the, that the Gemara says, which means that the governments of the world will become minim. Minim reject Hashem. It's like they say that uh, atheism is the fastest growing religious movement in the world. Now people who reject Hashem. So they seem to be dis disparate. Like a whole lot of just irregular, unrelated predictions. The Maharal of Prague comes along and he says they're not unrelated at all. They carry one, mes one message. One message. And that message is alluded to in the story of Hamalchus Tehafech Leminus. That the kingdom will become Minim. Minim is a particular category of people. So you get idolaters, you get ignoramuses, and then you get Minim. In Halacha, if you see somebody drowning, you are required to try and save them. If you see somebody who's an idolater drowning, you're not required to save them. If you see a min drowning, you can put your foot on their head. That's the halacha. In other words, a min is somebody who is considered to be dead even while they're alive because they've totally disconnected themselves from Hashem. So then he says, the Maral says that when it says that the malchus, the government, will become minim, it basically means that the whole structure will completely collapse. It'll be like as if it's dead. And then he goes on to explain why. Why do you have all these things? The other examples as well, but these are the ones we'll focus on for now. Why do we have all these things? He says because we have a principle in Torah that says that to go from one structured reality into a completely different structured reality, the original reality has to totally collapse first. We see that in the growth of a tree. You take a seed, which is a structured reality. It's a small but structured reality. You want, as a result, to have a tree, which is a large structured reality, totally different to the seed. It's not only far larger, it's got far more complexity. To do that, the seed must go into the ground and decompose so that the original structured reality breaks apart to give rise to the new structured reality. We have a similar principle about souls. We're told that for a soul to go from this world to Gun Eden, it passes through a river of fire so that it should forget the perspective of this world. Because if you arrive in Gun Eden with a perspective of this world, you don't appreciate the values of Gun Eden. Likewise, says the Maharal, the reality of Moshiach is a structured reality that is exponentially beyond what we could imagine in this world. Therefore, before Moshiach comes, Hashem will dismantle the existing structures. 
So the examples that he gives are collapse of government, the malchus becoming minim, collapse of social hierarchy, children not knowing respect for older people, and the collapse of the financial economic structures, no money in the pockets. So from a Jewish perspective, you see suddenly this is mega collapse of the structures of the world that we know in. Not just the structures of finance, but the structures of connection. You think about this for a second. How many people right now are worried that they may not be able to be with their families on Pesach? Because we just assume that everybody comes home for Pesach and suddenly there's no flights. So there's this complete breakdown of the structure of the world as we know it. That is, in the Maharal's words, exactly what's supposed to happen before Mashiach comes. Or there's even a Gemara that says, before Mashiach comes, everybody dies momentarily. So the Rebbe explains, you don't have to die, you have to experience bitul. That everything that you know, and everything that you feel, and everything that you understand, and everything that you built your life on, is bottle. It collapses, and from that you come to Mashiach. So as Jews, we should be looking at the Corona from this perspective. Not just another news item and did you hear and uh, do the masks help or don't they help or who should wear the mask, what kind of a mask should you wear. We should be looking at it and saying this is the collapse of the world as we know it in order not God because Hashem wants to destroy the world but because he wants to right now please God unveil for us the world that he intended with Mashiach. Because what do we do tachlis? Practically what do we do? So I think practically there's two things. The first one is to talk the right language. We say in Halal, He'emanti ki adaber. I have faith because I speak about it. Or there's another passage that says, They lost their faith and it was cut from their lips. So what does that mean? Why did they lose their faith? Because they stopped talking the language of faith. That's the first thing we have to do. Stop talking the language of media and start talking the language of faith and specifically the language of Mashiach because that is where we are positioned in history. Second of all, Haman in his proposition to Ahasuerus says to him, Yeshnoi am echad. There's one nation. Echad means also a nation of oneness. Who have become scattered and separated between the nations. It's fascinating to me that out of all the countries on earth, which one is the one with the most quarantine, self-imposed quarantine? The Amechot, that one nation, is now split up from each other, more than any of the other nations. Whatever happens in the physical is an expression of how it is in the spiritual. Unfortunately, the Amechot is the Amechot, the nation that is supposed to be the nation of unity, is totally disunified. They've just had their third election and they still can't get consensus. Unfortunately, today in Israel, there is so much division. Not just between Haredi and non-Haredi, but between this kind of Haredi and that kind of Haredi, this kind of Jew and that kind of Jew. Well, we don't have enough tourists from the outside. The whole concept of Purim is that it's supposed to be a holiday where we're told, why do we give gifts to each other and gifts to the poor? Because Haman threatened us all without any discrimination. So we should connect with each other without discrimination. If we've been pushed into a situation of quarantine, it might be a reminder to us 
that we've pushed ourselves into a situation of separation from each other and we need to remedy that situation. And Purim is a beautiful time to do it because Purim is a time of bringing everybody together. And so maybe a practical suggestion would be to have one person this Purim who you go and share Shalaf Monas with who normally you would never have considered outside of the little bubble of quarantine that we all live in. Our own little healthy, protected bubble. And in Mitzvah Hashem, we should uh, be zoiche that in this festival of Geula, Purim, we should have the real Geula with Mashiach and recognize that everything Hashem did in all of this was just simply for our sake to get us to the, the finish line, to get us to Mashiach. As we say, that we should have the brochas that they had at those times, the light and the simcha and the rejoicing and the yom tov. And please God, we should celebrate Purim all together with Mashiach. Everything right now is strange, odd, foreign. The world as we know it has been put on hold for a period of time and we hope not for a long period of time. One of the most bizarre elements of this entire corona experience is the notion of social distancing. I mean, under ordinary circumstances, we would be dead against social distancing. We are always encouraging people to spend face time and be close and give more attention to their families and to the people who are important in their lives. And suddenly it's a value to keep away from people, to isolate yourself, to distance yourself, not to have physical contact. When, in living memory, could you imagine people being told not to have physical contact? Bizarre. And then to add insult to injury, for us as a Jewish community, one of the harshest things to have to face is the closure of our shuls, the epicenter of Jewish life, which is another level of social distancing and maybe you would think spiritual distancing. This is our place. This is where we connect with each other, with our heritage, with our faith, with God. How can you put a barrier between me and my shul? How can you put a barrier between me and God? A good friend of mine, Rabbi Beryl Roddell, made an observation which I think is deeply meaningful. In the Jewish structure of marriage, there is regular social distancing. Here you're talking about the most intimate relationship, about people who connect at the deepest level, who have made a lifetime commitment to each other, and yet the Torah mandates that on a regular basis, with clockwork precision, this couple has to practice social distancing, once a month on average. And it's all tied into a woman's cycle, and it's out of your control, you don't get to choose when it's going to happen, and the rules are draconian, absolute se separation. And you think about that for a moment, and particularly when you speak to couples who are new to marriage, and they think, how can you do that? How can you interfere with our marriage in such a way? How can you limit our physical contact with each other? And all of us, when we counsel couples before they get married, we all say something along the same lines of, this is the opportunity to dig deep. This is the opportunity to recognize that in your relationship there is the visible, the obvious, the physical, the tangible part of the relationship. And that is not necessarily guaranteed to always have the same allure as you go through married life. And then there are the intangibles, the, the questions of, what is this really about? Why have I committed myself to this person when I can't have that physical touch, that reassurance, that pleasure, that love? 
when I have to look from across the room, from a distance, and find that that person doesn't just live in their body, they live in my heart. That recognition that our relationship is not bound by space, that we might at certain times be across the Atlantic, and yet we'll still have this deep connection between us. Those are the moments when we realize that the depth of our relationship is way beyond anything that can be captured in the physical, in the tangible. And that's when we realize that this is the most unique kind of relationship. It's a relationship of our choosing that has entered our lives in such a powerful way that we can never let it go, even if at times it's necessary, for whatever reason, to take a step back. Right now, when we're in the throes of this social distancing, it's a reminder for us to be able to see the next Jewish person as connected at my soul level, even if right now I can't shake their hand or embrace them. My relationship with Hashem is embedded in the core of who I am. It's in the walls of my home. It's in the cutlery in my kitchen, not only in the physical point of contact in the shul. I have no doubt that that will only deepen our relationship and highlight our awareness and please God bring us closer to God and God closer to us and bring us the brochas and miracles that we really need in our lives right now. If you're like me, you have been inundated in the last few days with message after message after video after WhatsApp about Corona and the message from this Hatzalah member and that doctor and this Jewish community having their experience and these names to say Misha Barach for and quite frankly it's all very overwhelming and quite scary. When you start to think what could happen and how could this develop and how frightening it could become, you could become totally overwhelmed. So how do we keep our heads straight? How do you pick yourself up? A number of people have asked me over the last few days, which Tehillim should they read at this time? Because Tehillim is a very powerful means of praying and we really need to daven right now. The truth is, all Tehillim is good and the more Tehillim you say, the better. There are certain chapters of Tehillim, though, that seem to really speak to what it is that we're going through. And one of those is Tehillim 121. I'd actually recommend that you read Tehillim 121 every single day and preferably even in English. And it starts off by saying that King David says, Lift your eyes to the heavens. May I in your voice I raise my eyes up and I say, May I in from where? Yavoy Ezri, will my help come? It's almost a rhetorical question. It's King David echoing the sentiment that we all feel right now. Where will the solution come from? This looks so overwhelming, so out of control, so long term. How will it ever come right? May I in from where, rhetorically, will help come? Hasidus takes that same phrase and just changes the punctuation. Instead of a question mark, we put an exclamation point at the end. May I in Yavoy Ezri, my help will come. Where will it come from? From Ayin. In Kabbalistic terminology, we speak about the whole creative process as being Yesh, existence, May Ayin, from non-existence. The Ramban Nachmanides coins that phrase when he describes the process of creation, existence from non-existence. 
Hasidus explains it a little differently. Yesh means that which we can understand, that which we can identify, that which we can see, that which is tangible, the now, even things that are spiritual, but the spirituality that we can relate to all falls into the category called Yesh. Hashem does not. Hashem is beyond what we can see. Hashem is beyond what we can comprehend. Hashem is beyond what we can describe. Hashem is Ayan, that which is never going to be defined. So King David's telling us, I will raise my eyes to the mountains, meaning I'll look to the highest spiritual heights, and then I'll come to realize that my salvation is not going to come from the world of nature, it's not going to come from the world of medicine, it's not going to come from other humans. For that matter, it's not going to come from the great angels or even from the world of miracles. This situation is so immense that anything in history to this point doesn't offer a potential solution for it. May Ayin Yavoy Ezri. My help is going to come from God Himself, not God the Creator, not God the Healer, not God the Miracle Maker, because those are all Yesh, those are defined realities of God that we have already experienced. But when we face something that is so large, so powerful, so overwhelming, so potentially devastating, may I am your voyagery. Our help will come from God in a way that we have not yet understood, not yet experienced, not yet defined. And that's why it will be a far greater experience, a far greater miracle, and a far greater result than anything that history prior has ever shown us. Let's go in a little virtual excursion, a thought experiment that takes us back 3,300 years ago, back to Egypt. Can you imagine, because we all have a picture in our minds of what the Jews looked like when they were slaves in Egypt. We, we can imagine them bent over, barebacked, whipped by a taskmaster, carrying a load of bricks on their back. Let's think of it a little differently. Let's imagine the fellow who's a slave, who comes home at the end of the day, exhausted, and he has no time, he doesn't focus, he can't speak to his family, he's wiped out. The family complains, you, you don't spend enough time with us, you, you don't engage with us, you don't talk to us. And he says, I don't know what you want from me, I'm working for such a demanding boss. So many things that are on my shoulders, I'm run off my feet. I don't have the opportunity to even think, to stop. And the truth of the matter is, this is life, this is how my parents lived this is how my grandparents lived. In all likelihood, this is how you will live. And there you have this society of people who were disconnected because of their circumstances, because of the, the world that they lived in, because of the way that they had to work. And then suddenly, out of the blue, all of that changed. And the great, massive superpower called Egypt started to crack. One plague, another. Slowly, the system that held everybody captive began to fall apart. And in that initial phase, there was some disbelief. There was some concern that this was just a short-term experience. There were those who thought it would never really reach their doorstep. But the fact is that people didn't have to work as hard because the systems were broken and they had the opportunity to stay home and to be with their families and to communicate and to explore ideas that had been buried deep within them for 200 years. 
And then they're given an instruction. The instruction is you lock yourself in your house with only your immediate family and you have a festive meal for a holiday that will become known as Pesach. And that meal will celebrate the total collapse of the society that held you in its clutches for as long as you and your grandparents can remember. And that meal in solitude, in quiet, where you dare not leave your house because those who leave their houses will succumb to the plague, that will be the moment where everything changes. And you move. You move from a mindset that says, like Pharaoh would say, I made myself a mindset that believes you worship the source of your livelihood. A mindset that says you abuse people and that morality is completely overridden by the pursuit of your own power. And you trade all of that for a reality of depth and meaning, insight and inspiration. I can just picture in my head that moment when the Jews left Egypt. What an incredible emotion. Picture it for yourself. Imagine you were coming into Jerusalem, into the Kotel Plaza, you and your family. And the next thing you notice, there's somebody you haven't seen in a long time. You were at school together. That's the person who you once had a business deal with. There's a relative you haven't seen in ages. And everybody has this light step smile on their face, a sense of meaning, purpose, shared goal, security, upliftment, and the feeling that you're in the embrace of someone who really cares about you. Can you imagine that emotion? Can you imagine that feeling of, of connectedness? That, that's what the Jews had as they left Egypt. Suddenly they were no longer just individuals walking, working under the load, but they were part of this big, magnificent, emerging new reality that was going to change the whole world. I don't think it's any accident that we're going through this so close to Pesach. Try and imagine what that amazing experience will be. Please God of Mashiach. Whenever we bench after a meal, we use the line, Baruch HaGever Asher Yiftach Hashem Vahayo Hashem Miftachoy. In the 80s, it was an incredibly popular song and it means Blessed is the man who trusts in God and Hashem will be his stronghold. So it talks about the concept of trust in Hashem. Very often we think that we have faith in Hashem and we do. In fact, so much so that the Talmud says, by being Jewish, it's already in our DNA. Ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. We are believers, the children are believers. We can't help ourselves even when we try not to believe in Hashem. Somehow it creeps up from our subconscious and we still believe in Hashem anyway. Now belief in Hashem includes the belief somewhere inside of us that whatever Hashem does is for the best. Often what He does is not how we would like things to turn out. Often we're disappointed, but we have faith in the fact that He knows better and we're going to defer to His authority even when it's incredibly painful and even when it's really not what we intended. That is called faith. Trust in Hashem is something completely different. Trust, like in Hebrew, the word, in modern Hebrew, the word betach. You ask somebody if they have a particular intention or if they plan to do something, they say, betach, for sure. It's also related to the word bitachon, which means security. So bitachon, 
Trust in God, the same word as security, means I'm secure in my belief, not only that whatever Hashem does is for the best, whether I understand it or not, but I trust completely that what Hashem does will be good in a way that I can appreciate it as being good. If, God forbid, it does not turn out that way, I will then fall back on my faith to come to terms with it. But before things happen, the position a Jewish person is supposed to assume is a position of bitochon. I am secure in the fact that Hashem will make things turn out well. Now that's not easy. When life is good and things run according to our expectations, we don't need to trust in God because we can appreciate and see how things appear as if they will be good. When things are difficult and it seems like the wheels have come off, well, then it's not so simple to have bitachon. On what basis? It's very nice for you to say. It's a great theory. But how do you know that things are going to be good? How can you say, I trust absolutely that things will be good? And the Torah tells us, Baruch HaGever, the brocha, comes to the person, Asher Yiftach Hashem, who can shift their mindset to get to that place of trust. So it would be very valuable for us to learn how to do this. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe would say that if a man is on a shipwreck and there's a tiny piece of wood floating nearby and he grabs onto that wood even knowing that it cannot support his weight, he does not yet need total trust in God because he's relying somewhat on the piece of wood. Trust in Hashem means where everything that you can see can't help. It's when the health system looks like it will be overwhelmed. It's when the economy looks like it will not recover, at least not in the foreseeable future. And you're grasping and clutching at straws, and even the straws aren't there. And then you trust and say, Hashem makes things in order to test us, in order to push us, to bring out the deepest within us. So the Choivois Halavavois, which is a medieval book of Jewish philosophy, teaches that a fundamental axiom of Judaism is the more difficult something is to do, the greater your reward for having done it. When it is most difficult to get to trust in Hashem, to be optimistic, to be positive, to trust that Hashem will protect us and keep us safe and take us through this and bring us out on the other side to a better world, when we work on ourselves to actually get there, the reward for having fulfilled the mitzvah of placing trust in God is that Hashem blesses us with the impossible blessing of everything actually turning out well. Please God, that should be our experience. This Shabbos we're supposed to read the first portion of the third book of the Torah. The portion is called Vayikra. The word Vayikra means, and he called. It tells us how Hashem called to Moshe before giving him certain instructions. And if you think about it, it illustrates the dynamics of the relationship between us and God, how Hashem reaches out to us and how we reach out to Hashem, both are represented within that word. The first question that the commentaries ask is, why is it necessary to tell us that Hashem called Moshe? It could have just very simply said, as it says in most places, and Hashem spoke to Moshe and he told him whatever it is that he had to tell him. Why the need for the word Vayikra and he called? The commentaries tell us that that indicates a loving relationship. When you love somebody, you reach out to them and you, you call them. You don't just start the conversation. First you engage them. First you grab their attention. First you show that you care about them. And then you tell them what it is that you have to tell them. 
So the overarching message of this parasha is Vayikra. Hashem calls out to us. Hashem reaches out to us in a way that is loving, in a way that is benevolent, in a way that is compassionate. We don't necessarily always recognize that. The second teaching, and it's actually an anomaly about the word Vayikra, is that the word Vayikra ends with the first letter of the alphabet. It ends with an Aleph. But the Aleph is actually diminished. It's a small letter, which is most uncommon. It doesn't happen anywhere else in the 24 books of the Tanakh. This is the only place where we have an Aleph that is written smaller than usual, which is an anomaly. It's unusual because the word Aleph actually means aluf, like in English, aluf, something which is elevated, something which is great. We refer to Hashem as alufoy shal oilam, the master over the world, the, the being that is great and controls everything. So it's an unusual letter to shrink in size because it's actually a, a letter that represents greatness. On the other hand, we're told that the small aleph is supposed to represent humility because we find that Moshe was an incredibly humble person and he didn't want, when he was writing the original Torah, to draw too much attention to the fact that Hashem called him with this loving, benevolent, kind tone. So it is interesting that the aleph represents, on the one hand, the greatness of Hashem, Alufoy shel oilam. Yet the minute the aleph comes into our lives, it shrinks down into a small aleph to represent our humility. Both of these messages are timely messages when you think of what we are dealing with in the world right now. Because on the one hand, we, there's no question that Hashem is reaching out to us in a, in a very dramatic way by totally shaking the foundations of the world and everything that we trust in. That is undoubtedly a message that Hashem reaches out to us. And we may not perceive it as such, but it is certainly a, a message of, of love and compassion. I want you to connect with me. I want you to recognize me. Hashem, as we know from the story of Pharaoh, doesn't send difficulty to the world in order to destroy, but rather in order to awaken. So, alufoy shaloylam. Hashem wants us to recognize that He is alufoy, that He is the one in control, not, not the markets and not the scientists and not the politicians. He is the one who's in control. And that should teach us, Aleph, to shrink down a little bit, just to diminish ourselves and be a little bit more humble. And rather than believe that we're the experts, we know exactly what the trends and projections are going to be and how this whole thing is going to work out, rather to be humble enough to say, we're in Hashem's hands, and therefore we should call out to Him. That's the message of the parasha Vayikra. We should call out, we should cry out to Hashem. We should speak to Hashem. We should ask Hashem to stop the epidemic in our world right now. We should ask Hashem to draw us close again as he did to Moshe in the time of the, uh, the desert, in the time of the Mishkan. And as Rashi points out, the small Aleph represents, even if you open your heart just a little bit, like that small little Aleph, or as he calls it, like the eye of a needle, then Hashem will respond with his Aleph, with the huge magnitude of his greatness and blessing, and give us whatever it is that we need. As we go into this Shabbos of Vayikra, it's a great time just to think for a moment, am I calling out to Hashem? How do I call out to Hashem? And with the confidence and trust that Hashem will respond in far greater measure than what we expect. Please God, He should hear our prayers. And please God, He should stop this pandemic in its tracks. And please God, we should feel close to Hashem even in these difficult times. Have a good Shabbos. Tonight at midnight, South Africa goes into lockdown. What do you take with you into lockdown. We obviously stockpile food, especially non-perishables, just in case. We obviously have 
toiletries. Hopefully we have something to entertain the kids. And there we are looking at the prospect of 21 days uninterrupted with our families. Some people on their own. So it's interesting to reflect on what from your normal life can you take into a lockdown? You may be able to work remotely, but if you're in certain industries, you can't take your work home. You definitely can't take the golf game home. You can't bring your gym home, even though you might well exercise at home. You can't bring home your favorite coffee spot or the mall that you like to frequent. You can't bring your beach Kruger location or any other beautiful scenic environment. You can't bring those things into your home. Truth of the matter is that there are many things that we own that we can't even use effectively during this lockdown. So what can you take with you into lockdown? It reminds me of a story in the Talmud. There was a guy who was on a ship and there were a number of people on the ship from all different nationalities. And they got talking during the course of the journey. What do you do? Where are you coming from? Where are you headed? This one was a silk merchant. That one was in precious gems. The next person was looking to import a particular kind of grain that wasn't available in the region where he lived. There was one fellow who sat on the side and he was really quiet. And eventually they said to him, well, what do you do for a living? He said, me, I, I, I sit and study Torah. So they said, well, how do you profit from that? How do you make money from that? He said, look, I'll explain it to you. The commodity that I trade in is never going to lose its market value. It doesn't occupy a lot of space. And nobody can ever take it away from me. Well, people thought that that was cute. Maybe a, a little bit odd. And that was pretty much the end of the conversation. Shortly afterwards, the Talmud tells us that the ship ran into a terrible storm and they were shipwrecked. And these people found themselves in a foreign place, foreign language. All of the stock that they were traveling with was lost to sea. And they were literally destitute, relying on the kindness of strangers in a foreign environment. Except for the fellow who had studied Torah. Because as soon as he arrived in wherever it was, he immediately went to the shul and sat down, took out a book and began to study. So when people arrived at shul, they approached him. Welcome to town. Who are you? And they discovered that he was a scholar. So they immediately engaged his services because they were a community that appreciated the value of scholars. And they hired him to start to give talks and lectures and shiurim in the community. And it quickly emerged that out of all of the merchants on the ship, the only one who had a viable environment and a steady income was the person who had studied Torah. It's an interesting time we're living in. It's an interesting time because it forces us to reflect on what is really worth stockpiling in life. Now that we're going to sit within our four walls, except for the quick excursion to get groceries, it's a time to think. All those things we chase, all those things we try to accumulate, how many of those things actually come with us for the long term? How many of those things actually give us value in life? I think it's a great opportunity for us just to refocus and choose 
from here going forward to spend a little more time investing in things of lasting value, starting from these 21 days to learn a little bit more about what it is to live a meaningful life, what it is to live with higher awareness, what it is to live with real closeness to the people who are important in our lives, what it is to live guided by the eternal value of our Torah. I think this is a wonderful opportunity for us, and hopefully we use it well and come out on the other side enriched and enlightened people. With Pesach fast approaching and community after community being put in lockdown, you hear many people speaking about the fact that it's unusual not to have guests and not to have a big Seder. It's also unusual, especially in today's world, for us to be locked in with just our immediate families. And there are a lot of jokes going around about they seem like nice people and it's good to get to know them. Not so funny, actually, when you think about it. The truth is, when you take people and you put them into closed quarters, especially if they realize that it's not going to be so easy to leave, it's a real test. It's a test of our relationship, of our patience, of our tolerance. As they say, one of the greatest challenges in life is to like the people you love. So you have to wonder, what's the spiritual message in all of this? Trapping us in our homes, with our families, without respite, especially as we get closer to Pesach. What we know is, one of the greatest values in Judaism is Shalom Bayis, which primarily is peace and tranquility between husband and wife, but it extends into the whole family. So it's the peace of the whole family unit, which will be tested by having us stuck together in an isolation environment for an extended period. We also know that one of the worst times to test Shalom Bayis, peace in the home, is on a Friday afternoon. I don't know what it is, if it's uh, stress or tension. You know, there are other stressful situations in a person's life, but for some reason, a Friday afternoon brings out a lot of challenge in the family environment, particularly between spouses. And as you're going into this beautiful, tranquil day that everybody boasts about how wonderful it is for family time, there's the irony of the couple of hours before when everybody is on tenterhooks and at each other's throats. The Rebbe writes in a number of letters that Shalom Bayes is not just between husband and wife. That is how it plays out here on earth. But we know that a lot of Jewish literature speaks about Hashem and the Jewish people as being the relationship of a husband and wife. And we've had our ups and downs. We've had the infidelity of the golden calf. We've had the estrangement ever since the destruction of the temple. And a lot of literature that speaks about this courting relationship marriage relationship, and eventually what will be the ultimate marriage, which is supposed to happen when Moshiach comes. In other words, the Messianic age is this idyllic relationship between the husband, God, and the wife, the Jewish people, the ultimate shalom bias, the ultimate union between Hashem and His chosen, the ultimate expression of peace and tranquility that will spill over into the whole world. Now, Shabbos is a miniature version of that, and I suppose Yom Tov too. It's a time where there's a little bit more peace in the home, a little bit less distraction, where we sit around a table, we sing together, we talk together, we pray together. Any time that there's great opportunity, the forces of impurity in the world try to undermine that opportunity. So as you go into Shabbos, and it's supposed to be a time of deep family 
there's this interference just before Shabbos that tries as best it can to derail that relationship, hence the tension and conflict that precedes Shabbos. In a number of letters, the Rebbe writes us to couples who are going through marital strife, and especially when you consider these letters against the escalating divorce rate and unhappiness in marriage that is very much a part of our modern world, the Rebbe says, seeing as we are so close to the ultimate state of Shalom bias, Hashem and the Jewish people, the Messianic age, you can well imagine that the forces of evil will do everything that they can or that it can to derail that relationship. So you put that into perspective and then realize that Hashem has forced all of us for the foreseeable few weeks into close quarters to have to confront our issues with each other, to have to tolerate the things about each other that are not easy to swallow, to have to work on Shalom Bayes in a forced exercise of a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever the period might be, it's a huge indicator that we're sitting on the threshold of the ultimate experience of Shalom Bayes, and this is the test to see if we can create it first in our home and in our family. Please God, we succeed. Lockdown or no lockdown, Pesach is coming in just over a week's time, which means that the whole Jewish community is quite obsessed now with the preparations, both getting rid of the chomets in our houses, cleaning up, and of course preparing for a Pesach Seder, albeit a much smaller one than usual. So at this time of the year, it's very common to hear the well-used explanation, according to Hasidic teachings, of the minor yet major difference between Chometz and Matzah. If you look at the Hebrew lettering, Chometz and Matzah are almost identical words. Two of the letters are exactly the same, and the other has a slight difference. The He of Matzah has a slight gap between the left vertical leg and the top of the letter, and the Ches of Chometz does not have that gap. That's the whole difference. And so we're told that the big deal about Chometz is that it represents being inflated, having an ego, a sense of self. And at certain times, that's a very dangerous spiritual position to take, the sense of ego and self, especially around Pesach. So Pesach, we're radical. and Pesach, we say we're going to get rid of every tiny little vestige of Chometz. We're going to take a candle and look at every nook and cranny of our house on the eve of before Pesach. And that's supposed to represent a tremendous introspection to try and excise all kinds of arrogance from our personality and instead to find matzah and to replace it with matzah. You know what's interesting about matzah? You've heard a million times that matzah represents humility. It's flat. It's bland. It's absolutely humble. What we don't often think about is how difficult it is to produce matzah. That simple food what we call at the Seder, the food of the poor person, the food they used to feed to slaves in Egypt because it goes a long way and it's easy to produce. Actually, not so easy to produce if you want to conform to halachic standards. In order for matzah to be kosher, it has to have the most stringent process right from start to bit to finish and then you get what is called shmura matzah which means it has even greater stringencies and then you get the top, the creme de la creme, the ultimate matzah of the lot which is called handmade shmura matzah. That means that there is supervision from the minute those stalks are harvested and even some level of supervision while it's growing in the field. And then, of course, forget about tech and machinery. 
that shuts down, we make the matter by hand, human input, going back to basics. You want to produce humility. That's not so simple. To be a simple Jew is far from simple. And that's what a matzah represents, particularly a handmade matzah. It really feels like our world today, the world of production lines and of machinery, has been very paralyzed with this coronavirus. And instead, we're going back to the handmade version, the things that you produce on your own, in your own home. Somebody recently asked me, what are we going to do about getting hold of all the Pesach products that we normally get? And then they said, oh, we'll just do a Chabad Pesach, meaning where you make just about everything yourself. It's a fascinating introspection here as we really simplify. We're not going to have an, as elaborate a Pesach as usual, certainly not in terms of the quantity of people at the table and probably also not in the extravagance of the fare that we'll offer. It's not so simple to be simple. We're used to being chomets. We're used to being ex exhibitionist. We're used to putting on a show, making a statement. This year, matzah, quiet, simple, bland, back to basics, handmade, created yourself in your own kitchen, dining room, with your own family. But there's a magic in that. There's a power in that. The power of simplicity. Something we almost lost in society. And at the moment, and especially this Pesach, we will, please God, regain. In our quest to get through the Pesach Seder and read the whole story, you could almost overlook a very significant part of the Seder that happens right at the beginning. It's that moment where we take a little piece of vegetable and dip it into salt water. It's called karpas. Karpas is supposed to mean appetizer. Your children will tell you that the salt water represents the tears that the Jews shed while they were enslaved. And people who are more into word games and anagrams will say that karpas, if you switch around the letters, becomes samach perech, which represents the 600,000 Jews who had to go through back-breaking labor. What's interesting about this is it's enough of a factor of the Pesach say that it becomes one of the four questions. Why on all other nights do we not dip, but this night we dip twice? It's not entirely accurate to say that on other nights we don't dip. Every Friday night and Shabbos day, and the truth is any time that you eat bread, you dip the bread in salt. On Rosh Hashanah, we dip the challah into honey. So it's not that unique that we should dip. But the point over here is that usually when we dip something at the meal, it's part of the meal. So there's a commemoration of the salt and there's the message of the sweetness of the new year and the honey. Over here, the only reason that we dip this vegetable is in order to dip the vegetable. In fact, in the Talmud it says, in order to get people to ask questions, to arouse curiosity. But in Hebrew, the word for dipping is tibul, which is the same as the letters of the word bitul, which is the whole theme of Pesach. Bitul means a lot more than just simple humility. People will often tell you the flat, simple matzah represents humility. It's much more than that. Bittul means the ability to totally surrender self. That means whatever my plans were, whatever my perceptions were, whatever my expectations are, I'm willing to let go of all of those things 
and be open to hear what it is that Hashem has in store for me and what it is that Hashem expects of me. So usually all year round, we're into the nice fluffy chala, which is my nice comfortable world where everything is golden brown and has a beautiful aroma and melts in your mouth. Pesach is the time where we say, one second, that was great. We did things, we grew, we developed, we progressed on a personal level, on a spiritual level, hopefully on a family level. Now's the time to say, new frontiers. Let's break out of everything that up until now we thought was success. Let's redefine that as my current Egypt, what, in, what currently enslaves me. And now it's time to move into something altogether different. When we use a word like altogether different, that implies something. I don't actually know quite where I'm going. I don't actually know where this is going to end up. It's going to require a step that I might feel I'm not yet ready to do. Much like the Jews on the eve of the Exodus. They had no real idea of where they were headed. They had this vague notion of going to receive the Torah, whatever that was going to be. They had a sense of going into the desert towards a promised land, which their great, great, great grandfathers had known, but to them was a very abstract kind of a place. They went on faith, and it must have been an incredibly difficult move to give up everything that they knew, even though it was toxic, in favor of something that was absolutely unknown. Unknown in terms of destination, unknown in terms of expectation, unknown in terms of what they would have to be committed to do. To make that move, they needed complete bittle. Complete bittle means I put aside all of my interests, everything that I've appreciated up until this point in time, everything that I've convinced myself until now that that was what life is all about, I put it aside. Bittle, tibble, dipping, immersing yourself in, in an experience, not necessarily a comfortable experience, a salt water experience, an experience that under ordinary circumstances I don't think I would visit, like the experience we're going through right now in the world. Nobody would have asked for it. Nobody anticipated it. We all know that something will be different at the end of it, and we have no idea when the end of it will be. So the appropriate Jewish response is, bittle. Let me use this as a catalyst to let go of everything that I hold so tightly as my security blanket, technology, the ease of travel, my belief in human-made systems. And let me allow Hashem to guide me where I need to go from here with total bittle, personal surrender, submission, because I know I'm in good hands. That's how you start a Pesach Seder. That's how you start a journey. That's how you break out of an Egypt. That's how you get through this really confusing period and land up in a promised land on the other side. It's time for some midweek mysticism. And this week in particular, we're about to begin what's called the Bain Hamitzarim, a three-week period of national Jewish mourning that starts with a fast of the 17th of Tammuz and continues all the way until the 9th of Av, which is the saddest day on the Jewish calendar. So what's mystical about that? Well, we're taught, there's a verse in the Torah that says, B'chol tzorosom loy tzor, that all of our difficulties are, so to speak, painful or frustrating, difficult for God as well. There's another verse that says, 
Imoi Anoichi Betzara. Hashem says, I am with you in your pain, in your difficulty. Which of course sounds really difficult to imagine because how could God be with us in our pain? We could understand if God said he was compassionate, even empathetic, but with us in our pain, that does sound just a little bit strange. Along similar lines, the Talmud tells us that after the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem, wherever the main Jewish communities moved, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, moved with them. Now that's interesting. How would it be that the divine presence would move with us into a state of exile? You would expect that Jerusalem is a holy place, and under all circumstances, and regardless of where the Jewish people might be, Jerusalem should be a place of divine presence and divine revelation. In fact, logically, it only makes sense that we should say that divine presence is around if we could see it, or feel it, or experience it, or witness miracles. It seems very bizarre to suggest that when we're in difficult circumstances, away from our homeland, exposed to aggressors, that God and his divine presence would be with us. And the mistake, I suppose, that we make is we tend to believe that we have an accurate built-in gauge of when God is close or far. And this is the mystical thought about this period of time. Sometimes we imagine that Hashem is close. Sometimes we feel it. We feel exhilarated. We feel inspired. And we then make the mistake of suggesting that because I feel a particular way, that means there's more divine energy, closeness to God. The truth is it doesn't necessarily work that way. The reason that God created the world in the fashion that he did was because he wanted to allow us the opportunity as individuals to discover our own potential, to achieve, and to make a difference. And you can only really discover your own potential and achieve and make a difference when you have to work, and when you have to work independently. So you are, the Baal Shem Tov tells us, where your deepest interest lies. You might be sitting in a particular room, listening to a talk, or participating in a group experience, but actually you'd rather be somewhere else, and that's where you really are. You are really at the golf course or you are really hanging out with your friends because that's where your interest truly lies. Where God is, is in the environment where his interest lies. And his interest lies in us rising to the occasion of our own accord. As long as he's glaring in our face with the wonderful supernatural experience of the temple in Jerusalem where everybody can witness the divine presence who says we're achieving? Maybe we're just reacting to the environment. But when we're out, dispersed around the world, with all kinds of challenges and very minimal spiritual awareness, and we still push forward and do what Hashem wants, then he says, ah, that's what I really wanted. That's the real reason I created a, the world. This is where my real interest lies. So that's where I really am. When we're in Tzora, Imoy Onoichi, when we're in the difficult places of having to make our own decisions and stand on our own two feet, that's when he's most with us.